All right, well, let's get started since we're getting back into the swing of things. I know some of you are joining midstream. That's totally fine. Um, all right, we are on page 59 of the Catechism. There are extra copies available on the back table if you should like one. Um, the, uh, let me just kind of give, lay, give the lay of the land here a little bit, okay? Um, so, what's the best way to start? Oh, so what's a catechism? Okay. Uh, a, a catechism uh, is, a, is a document like this that is used in the instruction of Christians. Um, and uh, they were developed in the, in the time of the Reformation, uh, in particular by Martin Luther, who wrote a catechism, uh, wrote actually two catechisms, his large catechism and his small catechism, uh, and uh, they became the basis for uh, Lutheran doctrine. Uh, Martin Luther comes in, as usual, guns, guns blazing in the introduction to that. He says, you know, the people, they are like swine who do not know anything, and, and so we must do something about this. Like, and so, <laughs> you know, uh, Martin Luther could use the word swine very, uh, you know, horribly, but anyway, that's, that's how that started. And of course, what, what often happens when you've got people making catechisms, you go, well, yeah, we have to make a catechism too. And so, uh, in the first Anglican prayer books uh, in 1549, there was a catechism. And as well, in 1552 and in 1559, and then uh, after the English Civil War, you'll remember that, that, the, that there was a time when all the kind of uh, puritanical types uh, started a civil war in, well, I don't know, depends on who you ask, started a civil war uh, in England, and at the end of it, uh, the, the, uh, the Puritans were routed and uh, sent packing, and, uh, and, and you get to write a new catechism when that happens. And uh, what, it, what was added to the catechism was material on the sacraments. Uh, so actually, in the 1549 catechism, 1552 and 1559, uh, there, no, there was no content on sacraments in the catechisms of, of Anglicanism because it was sort of considered like too, too dangerous, right? Well, obviously it was dangerous because some of this stuff just started the Civil War. Well, when the Civil War is done, guess what happens? The victors write the history and they also write the catechism. So we have sacramental stuff in the catechism now. Um, and it was appended as like a fourth section because you'll remember that catechisms had almost always had three sections, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, and the Ten Commandments. Well, now you got the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the sacraments. What was done in this catechism, which is uh, really one of the first, um, you know, really a kind of a, a modern catechism for Anglicanism, and, and, um, and you know, you kind of have the benefit of, of having it straight from the horse's mouth, because I was one of the architects of the catechism and, uh, and was a part of the writing team that wrote it, and also I'm still the chair of the catechism, of the catechesis task force, or cate committee for catechesis, or whatever you call it. Um, and so this was set up, and the question is, where are we going to put the sacrament stuff? And, and some people said, fourth section in the back. And of course, uh, I, I said, well, but that's like, you know, your history book where you, you know there's all this good stuff on the Cold War, but you never get to it, right? Um, and so I said, we got to stick it in the right spot. And where we wound up putting it was at the end of the Apostles' Creed, and there's a reason for that. The reason for that is uh, really important. It's that um, the culmination of the Christian profession is actually initiation into the life of the church through baptism. So we wanted it to be clear that uh, immediately following the Apostles' Creed, you'd have this, uh, this section on the sacraments. Um, well, what is a sacrament? 
a sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, right? Um, you should have that memorized, by the way. Uh, and, and the reason we say that is that, uh, you know, can you see grace? Grace is invisible. Uh, but, but, and this is a wild thing, uh, Anglicanism is, is unmodern enough to say that grace is actually a thing. See, if you're, if you're a real modernist, you, you don't really believe in invisible things. You really can't or shouldn't believe in invisible things. But, but we actually believe that grace is a thing. Um, and so it can be described in that way. Well, but, but how does the invisible thing participate in the visible world? Well, it's pretty simple. Sacramentally, right? Uh, you, through these outward invisible signs. Now, what's a sign? A sign is actually something more than a symbol. It's, it's a participatory uh, uh, sign. And, um, and, and we're not quite used to that these days, but, but I can give you a few examples. Um, one would be you're driving down the highway, and you uh, look, and your, 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 little, your little few light's on. And does it say in words spelled out, you are about to run out of gas? I mean, your car might. You might have one of those really smart cars, okay? Um, no, it doesn't do that at all. It says, now you might have a Tesla, and the Tesla says, there are, you know, several charging stations down the highway, and, you know, you can pick one. No, but, but for normal people, uh, you have this, you know, little, it's a little gas pump. Well, what's a gas pump have to do with the fact that you're running out of fuel? It's a symbol. It's, it's, it's in Greek, it's the semion. It's, it's, it's semiotic. It's meant to show you that it, it's a very quick... Uh, um, uh, way to get you to understand what's about to happen to you. Um, and then you look up and you see a giant shell in the sky. And what do you think? Ooh, it's a shell shop. Like, I'm going to go buy some shells. No, you don't think that. You think, oh, I can get gas here. This will be great. Why do you think that? Because you've been trained over and over and over again to see this connection, and you don't even think about it, right? Does that make sense? Well, a, a, a sacramental sign functions on a much higher level than that, but it's not, dis, it's not dissimilar from that. It's that over and over and over again, this uh, visible thing shows forth something that is not visible, right? Now, the shell in the sky and the, and the gas pump show you something that is visible that you're going to actually go do, touch, taste, feel, you know. But can I taste the body of Christ physically? Can I like, no, and I wouldn't want to, right? Um, well, I might, uh, but, but you shouldn't, and, then, and so there's this, there's this way of which that, that's how it happens. Um, but you know, uh, so having finished up baptism in the Eucharist, which you can go back and, and go through that if you'd like to, we move on to confirmation. Um, question 137, we're on page 59. And the way this works, if you're new to this, is, is I ask the question, you, you sort of give, you give the answer. Uh, you don't have to say anything that's in italics or in, uh, in kind of uh, uh, parentheses. What is confirmation? Confirmation is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer for strengthening by the Holy Spirit following a period of catechetical formation. In confirmation, I make a mature confession of faith, publicly renewing the vows and promises made at my baptism. Uh, confirmation is a really wild thing because it's often called, a, uh, I, love, I love what some people call it, it's a, it's a uh, sacrament in search of a theology. Uh, it's sort of like, well, we're really not sure what this is anymore, and we sort of forgot at some point. Um, but let me, let me give you my take on it, okay? And I, I think this is, this is the right take, but um, 
It's something like this. In the ancient church, uh, it's pretty clear that there was a transition between baptizing mostly adults to baptizing mostly infants. Uh, This happened after the patristic period. Um, It was pretty uh, common in those days to baptize adults, Um, very common to baptize people on their deathbeds. Uh, But a couple things happened which made that uh, not the case so much anymore, and largely it's patristic preaching on these questions because they would say things like, and John Chrysostom was great about this, he'd say, you know, uh, you think you might be able to get a deathbed baptism, but you know, we bishops and priests are very busy, and we might not be able to make it. So you should consider what that might mean. And think about getting baptized early. Uh, St. Augustine would often point to the competentes, who are the, those preparing for baptism in the middle of the church. Of course, they're surrounded by catechisms who have not yet been baptized. And he would say, look at these people. That, that's what you want to be as one of these people. <laughs> and he would say that to both the Christians who had already been baptized and those who hadn't, because it was like, look at them. They, they're taking this seriously. Um, so there was a great push to say, let's get over that. The other thing that happened was the introduction of, um, of auricular confession. Um, because part of the understanding was that if you, if you sinned after baptism, you were probably going to go to hell. Um, and you might say, wow, that's awful harsh. But the understanding was that you'd accepted a new life. Um, and so if you, if you sinned in a scandalous matter, manner, um, you would have to be restored to the church through fasting and prayer during Lent, of all things, um, joined to those preparing for baptism. And you would have to sit outside the church doors, in many cases, in sackcloth and ashes for 40 days, wailing and bemoaning your sins. And they would assign a deacon to make sure you kept up the moaning and wailing. Well, why? Because it's this understanding that you have, you've really betrayed your identity as a Christian if you sin scandalously after baptism. Now, we're not talking about, like, I lied about what I ate for breakfast. We're talking about, like, you know, I committed adultery or something like that. Um, but that was what happened. You had, to, you had to spend this time, and it was considered to be so undesirable and so awful to have to sit at the church doors in sackcloth and ashes for 40 days uh, that many people just said, well, I'll just get baptized on my deathbed. Well, the alternative was to say, well, why don't you get baptized now, and then if you sin terribly, then you can just go through, you can just make your confession, right? The other problem is that uh, in being restored to the church through sackcloth and ashes, you would have to give a public confession before the whole church and be restored by the bishop, uh, which, you know, raises some obvious issues. It's, it's like, uh, you know, I committed adultery with so-and-so's wife, and then he's sitting right there in the... In the in the, in the church, and it's like, well, that's not going to go very well. So this was an introduction, and, and by all accounts, it seems that it happened with uh, St. Patrick um, in Ireland first, and was one of the first proponents of, of uh, private confession. And of course, you can understand that, being a missionary to the Irish, because, you know, if you've got Irish people, you know, the last thing you want is brawling in church. Uh, so, uh, and, it, and it's certain to break out at a certain point. So there it is. Now, what does this have to do with confirmation? Well, it has a lot to do with confirmation, because if you're baptized as an infant... Um, in the ancient church, you would be baptized as an infant, and then you would be, uh, you'd, be, you'd be chrismated after your baptism, and then you'd receive communion for the first time, very much like what we do here at Christ Church. But as the life of the church spread from the cathedrals out to the parish churches where you didn't have bishops, it was understood, let the bishop come around later and, con- and do that confirmation part, which was reserved to the bishop in those days. Um, so what you wind up having is this, is this uh, separated rite of initiation. And the, the problem is in the ancient church, uh, the, the baptism, chrismation or confirmation, and uh, the Eucharist were considered the rites of initiation. Um, but as you kind of have 
bishops staying in cathedrals and not going out to the parishes, you don't have this going on so much. So it's like, well, when the bishop comes around, then we'll have confirmations, right? And in many churches, like the Roman Catholic Church, it's so rare for a bishop to visit that they just let priests do the confirmation, which I guess is within their prerogative to do. But in Anglicanism, we have bishops do confirmations, and that's the only person who can do a confirmation is the bishop. Um, But what is it? That's the big question. What is this thing? Well, we see over and over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles the laying on of hands for the uh, gift or increasing of the Holy Spirit. Um, What is it that... um, you know, you have those believers, they're wonderful. They're, they're baptized in apparently the baptism of John uh, because some, uh, some missionaries of John the Baptist have gone out into the world not really quite knowing there is a Holy Spirit and they baptize. And when the apostles come across, come across them, they say, we don't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so what do the apostles do? Well, they lay hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. Um, there's lots more instances of this. The laying on of hands and the, uh, and the gift of the Holy Spirit are tied together. Um, now, this point I have to be really cautious because um, we need to be clear that scripturally uh, to be baptized is to receive the Holy Spirit, to be baptized into the one spirit as Paul writes to the Galatians. Um, And so it's not that you're receiving the Holy Spirit as many even today in Anglicanism will say, Um, but it's like this. It's I'm baptized, I'm baptized. And uh, if you're baptized as an infant, we've talked about this in the past, you know, you, there's a good point when you can sort of say, and you can, you can say strongly, like, oh, I actually believe all this. And so the bishop comes around, and you profess it publicly, and you're confirmed. Um, but what is it really? Well, it's really something more like an ordination, actually. Um, when I was ordained a priest, there was sort of this, uh, you know, new, as of the 1970s, kind of way of ordaining people. You know, it was like... Uh, just, just, just tell God what you want in clear and, and unambiguous terms. So the bishop laid hands on my head and said, make him a priest. Okay, well, that's pretty obvious. <laughs> in the older rites, and in fact, in the Anglican ordinals, it is something more like an invocation of the Holy Spirit for the office and ministry of a priest. Um, and throughout the West, that's been the way it's been, and in the East as well, it's how it is. Um, it's the invocation of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands for this particular thing. Um, so confirmation is much more like that. Um, it's a prayer for the increase of the Holy Spirit. Um, so that's, that's that confirmation thing, okay? So there's two parts. The first is the laying on of hands of the, bishop, of the bishop's hands with prayer. Um, often bishops will use uh, uh, the oil of chrism as well, which is uh, explicitly tied to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, right? Chrism actually means gifts and oil at the same time. Do you know that? It's a great thing about Greek, right? The great thing about Greek is there are words that sound similar, and there's a reason for that, right? Um, you've probably heard of charisma, yeah? What does that mean? The gifted, right? So, charis uh, in, in Greek is often called grace or, or gift. Um, and in uh, Greek, the, the word um, for oil is chrisma. Uh, so, they're very similar. And there's a reason for that. Do you know why? Well, think about olive oil. It's miraculous, right? It's incredible. Like, and if you've ever had really good olive oil, you know what I'm talking about, right? Because really good olive oil. Like, by the way, you can go to HEB. There's, there's this uh, Italian olive oil that's not filtered, and it is out of control. Uh, and, you, and you'll know the difference immediately. Um, 
Yes, exactly. I will have no other. Uh, but, but, but think about this. The entire, civilizations of a- the entire civilization of Athens was built on olive oil. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's at the center of human civilization to have oil. Why? Why oil, of all things? Uh, it's, preserva- it, it, it's, it's a wonderful thing to have for food. Okay? I mean, if you ever tried, you know, if you ever tried cooking a chicken breast without oil in the pan, it's disgusting, right? It's just not even worth eating, right? You have to have oil. Um, and, and, but, but it comes, it gushes forth from all manner of life, right? That's how it works. Um, and even when we think about oil that's, that's uh, crude oil, it's, it's an amazing thing. You know, you, you dig into the earth and it comes out. Um, but the, the understanding is that it, it's a gift, right? It's a gift from God. And in, and in the Athenian world, it was a gift from the gods. Okay? Um, what is oil used for? It's used for several things. It's used to make priests. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Uh, it's used to anoint kings, right? Still today, I mean, if you watch, did you watch the, the Crown? Okay, there's that wonderful scene where it's like, and this is, you know, they're, they're telling Elizabeth, like, and this is the most sacred part of the ritual. And they, they take her to this, like, you know, it's the center of Westminster Abbey on those ancient floors, you know, and it's just unbelievable. And they put a canopy over her, and, and, and it's sort of considered this really deeply intimate moment because here's the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, you know, putting his thumb on her chest, like, it's a very sacred, solemn thing. But what's, what's the thing that's going on here? Is it like, hey, we want to celebrate having a new queen, so let's get her all greasy? <laughs> no, it's got nothing to do with that. It's, it's literally invoking the gifts of God upon the monarch. Okay? Um, we don't do that as, a, as, you know, um, as you know, in a liberal democratic society. We, we think that our votes are enough to, to, to give someone the gifts of office, but that's just not true. Um, you know, in the ancient world, it's, it's the king has to, or the queen has to uh, govern by the gift of God. Um, that's where we get this divine right of kings, right? Um, in, the, in the really ancient world, it's considered like the gods make kings and queens, and they are one of the gods, or they're a hypostasis of the gods, right? That's, that's how it's considered. Um, there's also a deep connection, and I'm probably going on too long. There's a deep connection between water and oil. Um, and that, that's a hard thing to kind of quantify, but, but this really first struck home for me when I went uh, a couple years ago to Jerusalem and uh, went down into the excavations under the city of David to the place where Solomon was anointed king with oil. And they, they took him, and this, this is all put out in 1 uh, in, um, Kings. Uh, they took him down to the cistern under the city, way down in the caves, to where the spring is, the Gihon Spring, and it was there that they anointed him. But they also bathed him in the water. So there's this idea of when you come up out of the water, uh, you've got to anoint your body with oil. And actually, some of us still do this today, right? You get out of the bathtub, and what, what's the first thing you want to do? Let's put on some oil, you know? Like, I think there's something that the essential oil people, as crazy as they can be, are onto here, right? No offense. Uh, but but it's... it's, it's you know, it just feels so good, right? It's like, um, and, and also, that's another thing altogether, oil is considered a way to carry medicine into the body. 
before you have pills, you have oil. It's like, well, you, you mix medicine in with oil and you drink it or something like that. Um, and it's very good for you too, by the way. Like, you know, we know this. If, you've, uh, if you ever have, you know, aches and pains, it's probably time to start taking your fish oil tablets, right? Because those pains will go away. I was, I was struck with knee pain a couple of years ago and Christina Coley, who's a nurse practitioner, she gave me a big old bottle of fish oil tablets and I've been taking them ever since because I I've just haven't had knee pain since. Um, so oil's an amazing thing. Why do I say all this? Because of this very ancient, very, uh, you might even say, um, uh, uh, geez, primal uh, thought about oil. Um, so this is big. Oil, gifts, it's all very connected. Um, and, of course, because, uh, because it's so connected to baptism, it's you come out, in the ancient church, you would come up out of the water and you'd be, and you'd be chrismated from head to toe. Um, because it's a, it's a sign of the gift of the Holy Spirit that's been given to you. That's the reality of it. Well, and what do we do here? Babies come up out of the water for baptism, little kids. Um, we anoint them with oil, with the sign of the cross over the forehead. Say, um, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit in baptism and marked as Christ's own forever. Okay, so there's a sealing that goes on as well. Um, all this happens in confirmation as well. There's oil, but oil is not the stuff of confirmation. It's the laying on of hands that's the, that's the stuff of confirmation. I make a mature confession of faith, publicly renewing the vows and promises made at my baptism. So this is to say that um, if you were a baby when you were baptized, you have the opportunity to make this your own publicly, which is important. And so you know, people will often say, you Anglicans, you don't believe that it's necessary to have a you know, grown-up faith. And it's like, uh, yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, and so that's all there. Um, uh, it's just that you, know, you, can't, you can't ask a profession of faith from a two-year-old. Well, you can, right? I mean, this is the funny thing about it. It's like you ask any two-year-old, do you love Jesus? I love Jesus. What about Daniel Tiger? Do you love Daniel Tiger? Yeah, I love Daniel Tiger with all my heart. <laughs> You're like, yeah, okay, well, there it is. <laughs> um, wow, so there you go. What grace does God give you in confirmation? In confirmation, I am further empowered and gifted by the Holy Spirit for daily growth and wisdom, courage, and humility before God in every aspect of my life and work. Okay, so this is that kind of it's, and I say, it's like an ordination. It's not an ordination, but it is like an ordination because it gives power for these things. Um, I have known many people in my life who, who have been just kind of in this place where they've just been, they've been like praying that God would do something to like light a fire under them, and they're just sort of like, I really wish that, you know, I just feel so bereft, and I feel so like unequipped. And lo and behold, what happens they say, yeah, I think I'll get confirmed. And then, you know, they get confirmed. And then they're like, ah, I'm ready. Like, I'm going to go do stuff. Like, uh, and it's amazing how that happens. Um, uh, because God really does grant this gift. Further empowered by the Holy Spirit for daily growth and wisdom, courage, and humility before God in every aspect of my life. Um, and I've seen this in ordinations too. You know, it's like, it's, it's a rare bird that, uh, that is ordained and doesn't come away deeply changed by it. Um, I'll tell you that, you know, when you elect a new bishop in a diocese, it's like, oh, this guy, really? Is he going to work out? Like, I don't know. Well, let me tell you, this was this case, that's the case with our bishop. There were some doubts. It was like, you know, I don't know. He might, well, it was almost like lots of priests were saying after his ordination, like, 
God changed this man. <laughs> he is a different guy. Well, that's how it works, right? Um, because, because that's how grace works. Um, grace takes what is not in you by nature or what might be deficient in you by nature and, and perfects it. So that's, that's the ask there. I think that, you know, many of you are here and you're, you're considering being confirmed when the bishop comes and visits in April. Um, and, uh, and I just want to say to you that the thing that you're really asking for is not to become an Anglican because that's not what happens in confirmation. Uh, and let me just be clear about how you become an Anglican. It's actually really simple. You start to act like it. It's not complicated. You just start to act like it. Like you worship according to the prayer book and you, you know, that's it. Like, there's no sign-up. There's no, like, certificate. There's none of that. Uh, and it doesn't happen in confirmation because confirmation is a sacrament. It's not, it transcends all that. Um, before there were even Christians in England, there was confirmation. Uh, so please keep all that in mind. That's just to say that, um, that, uh, that I, and I've heard people say that, and I'm, uh, like, I'm fine with it. You're going to keep saying that, and I'm not going to, you know, I can't stop you, but fine. Uh, but the, the, the stuff of confirmation is the increase of the Holy Spirit. Um, and that's, that's what I would think you'd be praying about, uh, whether or not you want to do that. Um, but then we ask this question, what is the work of all Christians? All Christians are to bear witness to Christ in their lives, to care for the poor, strangers, widows, and orphans, and according to their gifts, to serve Christ in the world and in the church. And I love this, because it, it immediately says, even if you're not confirmed, if you're a Christian, you've got a job. Right? I love, you know, N.T. Wright's always saying, if you're a Christian, you've got a job to do. <laughs> and I love that because, you know, we got, we've had too much in the church of this idea of like, oh, you're a Christian. That means like you believe things and you affirm things. It's like, um, yeah, there's so much more. And this one outlines that quite well. To bear witness to Christ in their lives, to care for the poor. I mean, it's, it's, it is our job as Christians to care for the poor. Um, and you might say, but you know, how do I know who the poor are? Well, look, there are, there are poor, the poor are all around you. Um, and, and I love what um, uh, many of the saints have said, you know, um, that Dorothy Day is a great example of this. You know, Dorothy Day served among the homeless and the poor for ages. And, and she would say, you know, the worst kind of poverty is not poverty of money, it's not being hungry. It's, it's a poverty for the beauty of the truth. And so I think that's right, that, that um, the world around us is dying of poverty. It's awful. Um, COVID has brought this to light. Do you know that like, self-harm has gone up in girls by an unbelievable amount since the beginning of COVID? Suicide in certain countries has just gone rampant um, because there's this poverty. Um, and it's not poverty of spirit in the, in the virtuous sense that we Christians talk about in the way the Scripture talks about it. It's a, it's a kind of um, just being... Just being uh, bereft, and so and hungry, and, and all those things, and so uh, so you know even if you say, well, I don't I don't know any poor people. Well, you can you can you can change that. And just get to know some, uh, you know, get to know your neighbors. Uh, to to care for the stranger. Um, you know, uh, we're taught as little kids to fear strangers, um, and probably for good reason as little kids. But but you know, I found that uh, that getting over a certain fear of strangers has been one of the best things that's ever happened in my life. You know, made friends among people that I wouldn't have ever considered that I could be friends with. Um, so that's another, another great one. Um, and, you know, make friends with people you wouldn't ordinarily meet. You know, it's kind of a, it's a really fun thing. Uh, widows. Why widows? 
I think I've, I've, I preached a sermon on this a couple months ago. Why widows? Yep, Paul, Paul says the widow has set her hope on God. Um, she hasn't set her hope on having a, having a, a new marriage because if she's, if she's committed to being a widow, she's just said, you know, I'm, I'm really happy uh, with, this, with this life that I've been given. The last thing I need is the trouble of another husband. <laughs> it's almost like what Tina Fey says in 30 Rock. It's like, uh, you know, stick it out. You know, he dies and you have two beautiful years and then you die. Um, that's about right. Uh, but, you know, the reality of it is that, that the widow has set her hope on Christ. And, and um, so... Uh, widows are a sign to the church of, of our final end, actually, um, that we're not made to just sort of have a happy marriage, right? I mean, as, as many of you aspire to that, I know. Um, but here's the thing. Marriage is always a gigantic disappointment. Always. That's at the center of marriage, right? If we're just honest about it, you say, I'm just so disappointed. Like, I thought it would be so great, and it's been really hard. It's like, well, yeah, because <laughs> it's not what you're made for. Like, what you're made for is to be married perfectly, like, to be the bride of Christ, right? Um, so, it's, it's, it's a shadow. It's not perfect. It's not everything. Um, and widows show us that. And orphans. Why orphans? Oh, why should we care for orphans? Well, first of all, they have needs, okay? That's, that's a big reason. But it's also because orphans show us who we are. <laughs> right? Like, we are cosmic orphans. Like, we're, we're deprived of father and mother. Um, one, of the, one of the great writers that you know, I think is, is, is working today, um, I'm trying to remember. Um, if I think of it, I'll, I'll tell you. But the, the, there was a wonderful article written last year about how one of the, one of the reasons for malaise in our, in our current state of affairs is that uh, we, we grow up without, um, without the three kind of fathers that human beings have to have. And, and uh, it's a heavenly father, right? An earthly father. And the kind of fatherhood that we call patria, it's the, the root word for patriotic, right? We, sh- we should have a kind of relationship with our, with our, with our homeland that is very much like... Um, you know, we stopped using it because of World War II and all the you know, ways that people use the word fatherland, but, uh, but it is a very normal way of speaking of your, of your homeland. And when you grow up feeling stateless, uh, orphaned, and fatherless, capital F father, um, you have no bearing. You don't know where you are. Right? That's a really tough thing to do. Right? If you don't have a country, do any of you feel stateless? I feel stateless all the time, right? I'll just be honest with you. Like, I feel stateless all the time um, because I think, like, what? It's like, dude, where's my country? You know, it's that kind of thing. Um, and I feel like that often. I'll just share that with you. Um, uh, you know, I have a very terrible relationship with my father. Um, and, and as a Christian, you know, it's not always easy, right? I mean, it's really rough, and, and I, there's all kinds of dissonance. But if you don't have that, this is the thing. How do you know who you are? How do you know where you are? Um, you know, and you've, you've known this through the years, right? If you have a great relationship with your dad, you've got something that you should not take for granted because it matters immensely. It's, it's, it's a very grounding thing to have. 
At the same time, you might look and you might say, oh gosh, I, you know, her dad is so wonderful and if I had a dad like that, I would know things that she knows and I don't know them um, because I'm so, there's just something wrong there. Um, and so uh, orphans show us this. They show us this really well. It's like, if you spend time with orphans, uh, they're, they're people who have to um, be oriented towards only their father. Um, and it's something that I, I'll tell you, I, I uh, got to spend some time with orphans in, um, in northern Iraq who were orphaned by ISIS in 2014. And they are stateless, and they are uh, they're orphans, and they huh, are also fatherless in the capital F way as well. They, you know, they're, they're technically speaking uh, Zoroastrians, uh, but, but they don't spend much time thinking about that. They, they have no faith. They have no, they have no, they, they don't know who they are. Um, and it's a absolutely and utterly hopeless way to be. Um, in addition to being stateless and, you know, not really even being able to fit into any country. You're, you're sort of, you're, you're just a bandit. Um, and, well, what do we find in that? <laughs> the very first step towards recovery, very first step towards recovery um, is, is for people to recognize that they actually do have a father. Um, so that's, that's the work that we partner with, with uh, Love for the Least. Um, the orphan is always the least, always. Um, so there you go. Um, and according to their gifts, to serve Christ in the world and in the church. Um, and, and in fact, this is, this is one of the great witnesses of Christian believing. You know, uh, Rodney Stark over at Baylor, the great sociologist, wrote a wonderful book about this, The Rise of Christianity. Um, and, you know, if you're a student, you know, you should take one of his classes. It's quite fun. Um, but one of the things he says is that the church grew th as much through adoption and childbirth as it grew through evangelism. And he's right. He's dead on right. So Christians were adopting children at this unbelievable rate. It's unbelievable. Like, you know, it's just adopting kids right and left. Adopting grown people, too. That's the other thing that's really wild. It's like, oh, you know, oh, you've become a Christian and your father's disowned you. That's terribly unfortunate. Why don't you join our family? Like, you know, there's a bed for you and everything, right? It's like, it's that level of adoption. Um, and, uh, and that's incredible because what happens? Yes. Yep. You, it's instant identity, right? And in, a, and in a world where we try to create instant identities through Instagram, okay? I mean, actually, Instagram literally means instant kind of identity, okay? So let that one sink in for a while. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's the instant kind of message of who I am out to the world. That's what it means, okay? Um, so consider that. Uh, just put a giant rock in your shoe. Uh, according to their gifts, to serve Christ in the world and in the church. So Christians are to serve both uh, Christ in the world and Christ in the church. Um, and I would actually encourage you in that. If you're a Christian, you know, you should, you should be thinking about, how am I serving Christ in the church? Okay, so it's inside ministry. And how am I serving Christ outside the church? Um, and look, those don't have to be uh, official things at all. Um, in fact, some of the most effective people that I've known as Christians have been those who had no official title, they had no official ministry, they were just there. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the grandmother who, you know, stands in the back of the church, 
And she waits around until she sees some family that's struggling with their little kids. And she's like, can I, would you like to sit with me to one of the little kids? And the little kid's like, I'd love to sit with you. <laughs> like, because my mom turns into a kind of like, she gets grumpy during services. It's like, and you're really nice, and you show me where the hymns are and all that stuff. And th- so that's it, you know? Um, it's, it's the Christian who, who's just genuinely nice to the checker at HEB, you know? Like, because that doesn't happen much, to be blunt, okay? Um, so consider that. But you can do a lot more than that. All right, should we talk about ordination? Let's open the can of worms today. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be blunt with you, which is that I have very deeply held opinions on ordination. And some of you might say, that Father Nelson, he's such an Neanderthal and such a jerk and such a misogynist. And I will say, you don't understand. Uh, but I will also say to you that you are entitled to your opinion, as wrong as it might be. And, uh, and part of the thing here that's really fun is this, it's this you get to play on the playground, okay? You get to play on the playground. And we can disagree, but I can't excommunicate you, right? Why? Because I'm not in charge, not really. Uh, The bishops are in charge, the bishops make decisions, and I can disagree with them too, and that's kind of fun, right? Uh, That's part of the joy of actually this. You know, many of you came from churches where everybody had to agree, and if everybody didn't agree, then we might as well close the doors. Um, in Anglicanism, it doesn't quite work that way. We like to have family squabbles, and we like to have them uh, ad nauseum, and, uh, and so welcome to the club. All right. Good? Good? Okay, awesome. All right, what is ordination? Ordination is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer, which confirms the gifts and calling of the candidates, consecrates them, and grants them authority to serve Christ and his church in the office to which they have been called. Okay, so here we go. We're going to break it down. Ordination is the laying on of the bishop's hands with prayer. Okay, so how's that different from confirmation? It's not, but it includes other things as well, which confirms the gifts and calling of the candidates. So this is the first part, as you say, oh, like, you've got gifts and a calling. That's the first thing that you look for. You say, like, do you have gifts and a calling? Okay, yes. Um, And it says, yes. So the bishop says, I'm going to put my hand on your head because that's what's going on. We've all recognized it. We know this. That's that. Um, In our diocese, and in most dioceses of Anglicanism, you have to go through several levels of discernment before they even let you go to seminary. It's not like it is in other churches where you just say, well, I'm applying to several different seminaries and, you know, all this, which you can still do, you know, but you won't be on an ordination track. Um, to, to go through an ordination process, you have to go meet with a bunch of people, and they have to talk to you, and they have to, uh, you know, ask all these questions and things, and you have to answer them, and you have to go meet with a psychologist and a, and a psychiatrist and a doctor, and I mean, it's just, it's, in, it's a lot of stuff. Um, what's the reason? Well, it's to say, do you have a calling, and do you have the gifts? Those are, the, those are the questions being asked. Because when the bishop lays hands on your head, that's what the bishop wants to know. Consecrates them. What does consecrate mean? It's the same thing as like, you know, uh, make, make this guy holy. It's like that. Um, and there's an old joke about ordination rites in the West that it's, you know, Holy Spirit, make this boy holy. Like, that's an ordination, right? It's, it's got, and, and then you're like, ha, 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 ha. Like, <laughs> Because it is ha ha ha. That's exactly what it is. It's, um, you know, am I consecrated as a priest? Well, yes. And then we can just go ha ha. Like, of course, right? Because it's, it's, it's the office of Christ, okay? It's not like some 
uh, lowest common denominator like he'll do. It doesn't work like that. Um, one, of my, one of my great priest friends says, you know, the, the best indicator of what the priesthood really is, or of any ordained ministry, is, is just look at the kind of weird clothes we wear on Sunday mornings. Like, everything's too big. We look like little kids playing dress up. Like, and there's a reason for that. Because we are totally inadequate. Okay, so there you have it. All right. And grants them authority. So what is authority? It's, it's, it's being authorized, right? It's being authorized. Uh, grants them authority to serve Christ and his church in the office to which they've been called. So there's that, okay? So again, serving Christ in the church, right? It's all there. Um, in the office to which they've been called. And in fact, office is that uh, word that relates directly to ordination, orders, holy, holy orders, holy offices. Um, it's this idea that um, um, we don't really think about this much anymore. When we think about offices, we think about um, like, you know, cubicles and little rooms with doors, right? Um, but here's the thing. Did Jesus have an office? Yes, several, three of them, actually. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, but did he have a room with a door? No. And, and the question is, what, is it, what are his responsibilities? Well, it's prophet, priest, and king. Those are his offices, right? Um, the, the office actually relates to what you do, not where you do it. Does that make sense? So, um, so there's, there's that. That's, that's really what the ordination is. It's, it's the kind of office and, um, and binding uh, for one's life that, that winds up there. Because here's the thing. The Anglicans actually hold, and this doesn't really show up very well in the catechism, although it should. It's one of those kind of you know, things that people find really high church, and therefore some people find offensive. Um, but it's, it's this understanding like, once you've been ordained, you can't get out of it. There's no way to get out of it. Like, I'm going to die a priest. I can't retire. There's no such thing. And I might retire from, like, active, uh, kind of like having to, you know, do things. Um, but I can't quit. Like, and even when a priest is deposed, like, taken out, forced to resign, that kind of thing, they can always be restored. Um, so I'll tell you this uh, story. When I, was, when I was a young priest... I was at Olive Garden with the, not Olive Garden, it was the nicer place, Macaroni Grill. I was at Macaroni Grill with the, with the rector, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and he, he pointed over to a table, a few tables of side, and he said, Father, do you know who that is, that guy over there? I said, well, I've met him a few times, John, he's a nice guy, you know, he'd come to church, and he's like, you, don't, you, probably don't, you probably don't remember him from when you were a kid, he was a priest in the diocese. And I said, really, what happened? Well, apparently he, he had a, a bit of a taste for the booze, and, uh, and he was drunk so much that he'd occasionally show up to church drunk, and, and it was just a mess, you know, and, and so the bishop took him out and said, you can't serve, and this is not going to work. Uh, took him out um, and, and uh, you know, laicized him, essentially. Um, but crazy things happen, and in his sort of like, wild days as a 20-something, you know, recently removed from ministry priest, he bought a motorcycle and started hanging out with Christian motorcycle gangs. And they essentially, like, re-evangelized him. Like, <laughs> and they got him in recovery. And he's been, he's been a recovered alcoholic for 30 years now. Uh, but I went to California and came back. And there in the church office is John wearing clericals. He's wearing a clerical shirt and collar. And, and he's like, Father, 
the bishop restored me just last week. <laughs> and it was like, this is so cool, right? Wonderful man, a wonderful priest. Um, he's serving in amazing ways. And just like, it's the most crazy, crazy thing. But was he reordained? No, he got restored. Um, because it's this understanding, it's forever, it's, it's for your life. Um, okay, what grace does God give in ordination? In ordination, God conveys the gift of the Holy Spirit for the office and work of the order being conferred. So there are three orders in the church. Uh, actually, some people will say four, but there are three ordained ministries in the church. There are bishops, priests, and deacons, and we'll get into why we, why we say this. Uh, but some people will say bishops, priests, deacons, and lay people. Those are the four orders of the church, and I think that's quite right. Um, Bishop, Bishop Iker, if you remember him, he would always say that that was what happened, and he'd come and visit, and he'd say, you know, we're all, we're all in ministry. Uh, and, and I love that, and we have to say that, because I think many of you came from churches where ministry was for a few people, but not for everybody. And uh, in, in Anglicanism, everybody's called to ministry. Everybody. And you don't have to be ordained to do it. That's the other part. You only have to be ordained to do certain things. So I want to change that part of the conversation. Um, and, and really, the best way to do it is to call attention to a great current event. You know Beth Moore became an Anglican? Did you know that? She was confirmed an Anglican back in October. An unbelievable thing. So she, at her Anglican parish in Houston, donned a cassock like this and a white uh, um, uh, surplice and read readings on a Sunday morning and administered the chalice on a Sunday morning. And the Baptist Theobros had a fit. They were just like losing their minds. Like, oh God, it's finally happening. She's becoming ordained. Like, blah, 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 blah. And of course, we Anglicans are like, are you serious? Because <laughs> this is hilarious, right? That you think that is hilarious. Um, but, but that's just to illustrate it, right? She, she's acting as a layperson doing ministry, like, that's normal, like, totally normal. Um, so, let me just get you over that right away. All right. But the orders have certain works involved in them that are unique to that order, and I want to get to the dead heart of that, because though I'm a priest, I also have lots of ministries that lots of other Christians have, right? Like, to pray for people, big duh, like, that's a ministry of every Christian. Like, to care for the poor, ministry of every Christian. Care for orphans, care for widows, ministry of every Christian, okay? There are ministries that I share with all of you and that we work together in. But there are also things that you're not authorized to do. I'm authorized to do it. Does that make sense? Okay? And so, we get our noses bent out of shape because we're like, but I thought I was supposed to be. Look, every Christian is called to ministry. Like, every Christian. And um, so, just hear me say that over and over and over again. All right. What are, the three ordained, what are the three ordained ministries in the Anglican Church? The three orders are bishops, priests, and deacons, which we have received from Scripture and the historic church. Okay. So all three of these ministries are in Scripture. They're in the New Testament. Uh, they're lined out quite strongly. Uh, there's a bit of a debate as to how they really develop over time, but by the, first, by the end of the first century, it's pretty clear you've got a threefold order of ministry in the church. Second century, really clear. Third century, even more clear. Uh, so I'll, we'll get into how that works and how that works out. Um, now, in Scripture, you have lots of different phrases and words that are used to kind of describe ministry. Like there's pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets, all that in, in, uh, in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4 is a great example of that. Um, but you also see this very clear, like, uh, official ministry like that, that is designated in this specific way, all right? So we're going to talk about that. Um, 
We've received from Scripture and the historic church. The historic church has three orders. Anglicans are unique among uh, Western uh, descendants of the Reformation in maintaining those threefold orders. Um, the only others that I can actually think of is uh, like um, certain types of Scandinavian Lutherans. Okay, so there you have it. <laughs> and, and some have brought some of these back. That that can that can happen too. Uh, but but here we go. All right, so. In the Reformation, Anglicans did not change the threefold orders. We maintain them. Um, what is the work of bishops? Bishops represent and serve Christ and the church as chief pastors, catechists, and missionaries in the tradition of the apostles. They are to confirm and ordain and to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church. All right. I love these answers. You know why? Because I wrote them, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but listen to this. Bishops represent and serve Christ. So the bishop is Christ to us. That, that sounds like a really high inflated claim, but believe me, it is not. Um, it's this very clear understanding that I, as your priest, have a bishop. Do you understand what that means? It means I have a pastor. It means I have a teacher. It means I have someone to serve me. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'm going to see the bishop tomorrow, and, and we're going to talk about some things, and, and, uh, and I'm certain that I'm going to get good counsel from him. I'm certain that I'm going to get some direction from him, and, and it's going to bring a lot to bear in the life of this congregation. Okay, so, you know, the buck doesn't stop with me. Like, it does in some churches where the pastor is pretty much alone as an island. If you've uh, listened, as, you, as many of you know, have the, the kind of Who Killed Mars Hill podcast, one of the biggest struggles is that that guy didn't have anybody over him at all. Um, and that would have solved, I'm certain, like 90% of the problems. <laughs> you can't solve narcissism, but you can, you can solve a lot of the other problems uh, that might be there. Um, so as chief pastors, so this is the shepherd role, you know, the shepherding role is, is fairly straightforward. It's the reason that the bishop carries with him this pastoral staff that looks like what? Uh, it's, it's a shepherd's crook. And uh, there, there's been a rather recent tradition of new bishops get wooden ones, and then you sort of upgrade to the silver or to the gold one over time. Uh, well, why? Because it's to be reminded that you're just a shepherd in the early ones, and then, you know, you get more glory later, I guess. I don't know what that means. But, but it's basically like to be reminded that um, you're to use this. Now, you really should talk to shepherds. You know, we were talking about shepherds a little while ago. What do shepherds use their crooks for? Do you know? What's that? Yeah, yeah, you can definitely grab a sheep by the neck with one of those things and pull them back into the flock. Absolutely. You know what else you do with them? You beat the tar out of wolves and coyotes. And <laughs> that's not a bad thing either, uh, you know, uh, and that's something you have to do. Um, so bishops are charged with guarding the unity of the church. Okay, this is the unifying role. You, you haul that sheep back in, uh, but also to guard the discipline of the church by driving away uh, those that would undermine that discipline and unity. Um, and so, so that's, that, that's that use. And I've seen bishops do both. Um, and uh, and it's, it's quite a, quite a task. Um, they are also the catechists. They're the chief catechists of a diocese. So um, the buck stops with the bishop in terms of teaching. Um, and one of the things that I've really enjoyed doing is reminding bishops of this, of this office that they hold. They are the chief teachers. They need to teach. Um, they need to teach not only their clergy, but they need to teach the people of the diocese, and they need to take that very seriously. 
Um, they're also missionaries. We don't think of bishops as being missionaries, but let me tell you, they are missionaries. Um, uh, there was a long time ago when um, uh, in, in Anglicanism in America, missionary bishops were ordained and given a horse. Like, <laughs> okay, get on the horse and go. One of my heroes is Jackson Kemper, who was a bishop, uh, first missionary bishop, and, and he was uh, given a horse, and he rode around in deerskins, and, uh, you know, that was, his, that was his ministry for a long time. Um, and uh, so, the bishops are missionaries. They, they serve in this role. They are sent out with the mission. Well, why? Because the apostles were missionaries, Right? Um, and it's, it's right there in Latin, you know, if you, this is why you should read Latin, you should read the Vulgate, because it's very enlightening, right? It's, um, it's as the Father has missioed me, I missio you. Okay? It's pretty crazy. And in Greek, you get the words that are really great. It's like, according to and in the same way as the Father has sent me, I send you. It's, it's the word katholos, it's, 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 it's just like Catholic, it's in, according to the same way, I send you. Okay, so um, this is their missionary role, it's also their apostolic role in the tradition of the apostles. They are to uh, carry forth the message without altering it. That's, that's the, big, the big task and, you know, it often falls to people uh, to remind them that they have no prerogative to alter the apostolic uh, message, to alter the gospel. Um, they are to confirm and ordain. So bishops can confirm and ordain um, to guard the faith, unity, and discipline of the church. So let's just say faith. The bishops work together to guard the faith of the church. They meet in council to decide things. Um, they also, and, and you know, if you read the ancient church, you know, the, the Council of Nicaea, right? And the Council of Constantinople. We read their creed every single Sunday. The bishops gathered in Constantinople. That's 381, the, council, you know, the Nicene Creed, which was started in, three, in 325. We read the creed of bishops who gathered to decide doctrinal matters in the fourth century. Today. That's crazy. But there it is. Um, they were guarding the faith and unity of the church. And also the discipline. So uh, matters of church discipline fall to the bishop, even for lay people. So this is a really wild thing. Um, if I do anything that sends you into saying, like, there's something wrong with that guy, okay, you take it up with the bishop, okay? I'm going to be really clear with you. Not to the vestry, because they can't do anything about me teaching wrong things or acting weird, right? The bishop can, so take it to the bishop, right? I'm just going to be really blunt with you. Like, a lot of people at Christ Church still act like Baptists, where you take it to the board of deacons and then they deal with the way with the erring pastor. Take it to the bishop, right? And you know what the bishop's going to say? He's going to say, I'm going to talk to him about that. Well, he might also say, from what you've told me, he's doing exactly the right thing. So let's talk about that. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to teach you, he's going to pray for you, and then he's going to send you back. It's a wonderful thing, right? So I just want to kind of remind you of that, that that's how things go. Um, that's how things should go, rather. Um, now, it does fall to bishops to discipline clergy that, that fall into trouble, and, uh, and you should be thankful for that because uh, the reality of it is that in many churches, if a pastor uh, misbehaves, there's very little to stop him aside from forced resignations and people saying like, oh, you know, we're, we're done with you. Um, so, uh, you know, that misbehaving is, is quite there. To give you a story about this, and, you know, 
we don't have many doctrinal divisions these days because we're sort of cleaned up our act, but in, I remember when I, was, when I was in seminary, there was a priest up in Wichita Falls who, who wrote an article that was full of unbiblical stuff uh, for his parish. I won't go to much length to say what it was, but uh, <laughs> Bishop Eicher <laughs> sent a letter to him, which we, we, the clergy of the diocese, refer to as the howler. Remember that, uh, that letter in Harry Potter that opens up and goes, run, run, Weasley, <laughs> Ronald Weasley. <laughs> because it was very much like that. Uh, it was, you don't, you know, it, it was just very clear. Of course, the letter wraps up with, you will read this from the pulpit at every service for two weeks. You will put it in the parish newsletter and send it out. Yeah, and you'll nail it to the door. I mean, it's that level of like, we're going to correct this, right? Um, so, so, you know, that can happen, right? Um, and, and, uh, and if you don't do it, well, then I'm going to come knocking on your door, and I'm going to, you know, I'll pull you out, right? That's how it works. Um, so, you know, hear that, that there are protections in this. Like, that should give you some comfort, right? Um, that, that that's how it works. Um, and you might say, but not all bishops do that. Well, yeah, that's right. That's lamentable. But better to have a bishop than not, I would say. Um, and that's just my, my word on that. Where do we get the word bishop? This is a great example. That's not a, that's not a question of the catechism. It actually comes from the Greek word episkopos, um, which is the word for overseer. That's, that's really one of the bishop's main roles, is to oversee the ministry within a diocese. Um, epis, epi meaning over, skopos meaning seeing, just like a telescope or you know, a scope on a gun. Um, it's overseer, okay? Episkopos gets shortened in the history of language down to piskop, pishop, bishop, right? So actually in the King James Bible, the word, the word episkopos is translated as bishop in the King James Bible. That's why uh, King James only churches will have bishops, right? If you ever want to kind of, they'll have, they're called bishops. Anyway, that's that. Okay, got it? So that's, that's the history of that word, all right? And you're going to find that applies to the next two as well. So let me, let's get into that. Let's just get this done, okay? We're running up against time, but I won't go too long. All right, what is the work of priests? Serving Christ with their bishops, priests or presbyters nurture God's people through the ministry of word and sacrament and pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name. Okay, so I'm a priest. I'm also a deacon. Um, what, am I, what am I able to do? Well, I'm able to serve Christ with my bishop. I cannot serve Christ apart from my bishop. I have to have a bishop. If I do not have a bishop, uh, I'm, I'm nothing, right? Because I serve the bishop in this parish. Um, every time I go to the altar, I am serving as the bishop's man at the altar. That's what I do. Every time I step in the pulpit, I do so as the bishop's guy on the ground serving in this role. When I'm right here teaching catechesis, I serve as the bishop's uh, agent in this parish to teach. Okay? And I'm authorized to do so. Do you see that? So it's that authorization that's there. Nurture God's people. Through the ministry of word and sacrament, so there's always word and sacrament, the priest ministry, always word and sacrament, 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 it's just forever, you know, that's what a priest is, is word and sacrament, okay? Um, pronounce absolution and blessing in God's name, okay? So two things I do, I bless, you'll see me do blessings, and I do that all the time. Can any Christian bless? Sure. But a priest is authorized to bless by the bishop, also authorized to give absolution in, the, in confession, and from the front of the church, uh, in that way. Okay, so you got that? All right, where's the word priest come from? It comes from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder, or even more appropriately, I think, if I'm reading the Greek right, 
bearded one. So, you know, I got it. Uh, um, but, but it's, it's about, um, um, but that, that gets shortened to prester, prost, praised, priest, okay? In fact, the word that we translate to priest in the Old Testament, which is um, in the Greek, hieros, is, doesn't wind up being that. That's, that's kind of like hierarch or something like that. Um, it, gets, it gets switched in the translation. So what you'll read in most English Bibles is elder for, for presbyteros, but not priest. But the word priest comes from the Greek word presbyteros. Um, the, the, the Greek word for an Old Testament priest doesn't come from that. Um, so that's just an interesting thing. But we call, we call them all priests, you know, if we think about it really closely. All right. What is the work of deacons? Serving Christ under their bishops, deacons care for those in need, assist in public worship, and instruct both young and old in the catechism. I love it. Um, so they serve Christ under their bishops. They care for those in need. Um, I once baptized a guy who was later ordained a deacon. He's a wonderful man, Jeff Stuglemeyer. I mean, he's the, he's the most like clearly called to be a deacon person I've ever known in my life. Um, this guy, when I first met him, when he was not even baptized yet, he would show up at the church kitchen with bags and bags and bags of sandwich bread, peanut butter and jelly, turkey, all kinds of meats, and he would go make sandwiches on Saturday mornings and go deliver them to the homeless people living under the bridges and overpasses in the city. Just going out and doing it. Like, he was just awesome. Like, he, he had a real gift for service and still does. Unbelievable guy. Um, and, uh, and that's what they do. They assist in public worship, so deacons uh, will read the gospel. Um, there's a reason that deacons read the gospel. I love it. It's that, it's that they are living images of the gospel to the world. And that's why the deacons usually, historically, read the gospel from the middle of the church um, and would, would face north um, in those days. Okay. Um, so they assist in public worship, and they also instruct both young and old in the catechism. So uh, deacons have a role of, of catechesis and catechetical ministry as well. Um, the word, the, the deacons that you first see in Scripture are in the Acts of the Apostles, the seven deacons of the church in Jerusalem, um, and they are set to do several things. One is to serve the tables, so they're, they're, they're called servers um, in that sense, um, and the Greek word for server is diakonos. <laughs> they are also uh, obviously there to instruct and evangelize. You see uh, Stephen giving that wonderful evangelical sermon in, in the Acts of the Apostles before they kill him, uh, and so that's there as well. Um, but the word diakonos very quickly becomes deacon in English. So all those words are scriptural words. You know, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Uh, they, they come down to us in that way, um, and so just, you know, there it is. If you, uh, if you want to explore ordination, you're certainly welcome to talk to me about that. Um, I'll make a little bit of a notice, but you know, for now, if you want to hear my hot opinions on ordination, you can certainly search Lee Nelson Anglican, and all of my hot opinions will show up online, and you can uh, be angry or happy, depending on who you, and how you hold it. But, um, but you know, I make no secret about that. I'm, I'm, a, you know, I'm very committed to that. But I also recognize there are people in this parish who do not hold that position. You're welcome. You know, you can you can you can hold it just knowing that uh, that you know you're not going to move anything really, and and that's just kind of what I say to people. It's like you know, you can play on the playground. You're just not going to decide where things go. So <laughs> there it is. Uh, uh, thank you all. We'll get started shortly. <laughs>